there's been this myth perpetrated that children benefit, or it does no harm to children, to be in childcare from the earliest ages. This is not true. It's not good for children. And there's increasing data coming out showing, I'm afraid, that it's not good for children to be in childcare. I, I put my own children in childcare, but if you look at the data, this is what it says. And I think as women, we need to rebel against this patriarchal culture that's been forcing us out into work, really. And we need to say, no, stop. We want to look after our children. We want to be at home. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Belinda Brown, researcher, author and commentator on issues of gender, family and community. Belinda writes for The Conservative Woman and is also a patroness of the Scottish Family Party. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Belinda Brown, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me. In recent times, many of the qualities that have been seen as traditionally feminine have been uh, under attack, really. Uh, women are encouraged to be independent and um, competing with men. Um, how do you see this uh, the change in society? Um, I look at that from quite a long-term perspective. I've been studying the women's movement and feminism for many years, and I think it's been part of a movement from where society was mainly focused around the private realm. If we're talking, say, pre-industrial revolution um, in the UK, I think the US was an agrarian society for longer. And during those times, the whole of life was focused around the private realm. And when that was the case, um, women were at the centre of society because they were, in a sense, at the centre of the private realm. And then when the Industrial Revolution happened, there was a gradual movement outside of the private realm. And I actually think it's not just that women have been sort of pushed away from their, let's say, more feminine <clears throat> roles. It's that actually both men and women have moved from, say, a more family-oriented role towards a more, um, what should we say, labour force-oriented role. I, I think it's not just that um, women have become, let's say, less, less sort of womanly or less archetypally womanly. I think both men and women, I think, I think that our, our identities as men and women are actually forged in the family. They're forged in, in our roles as parents in relation to our children. And as we've moved away from that, we've, we've lost that sort of... Um, male and female, man, woman, woman identity. So, so who would you say is, is behind that kind of push? How did it happen? This is a very, it's a, it's a very big question. Um, you know, and in, 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 the first, in, the, in the first instance, I think, you know, you, you've got processes of industrialization happening. And I think that, um, you know, this, it, it was, this came from from women um, as as much as anyone, um, and actually in the early days you see a sort of split between those women who, like say Mary Wollstonecraft and 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 others, Grimker I think in the U.S., who who very much valued the 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 private realm role for both men and women, and and felt that in this role we we both um, developed strengths of character through through this location in the private realm and, and pushed for equality for men and you know for women in the in the private realm 
to those women who said, no, no, that, you know, now it's, it's out here. Let's all move into the, into the, into the workplace, into the state, and um, pushed for that. Now, um, but that's at, the, that's at the sort of superficial level. I think there are, there are much bigger stories going on, which, which I can try, try to explain um, if, if, you'd, if you'd like me to. Mm. Um, but it's difficult to know where to start because there's so many different, different threads to the story. Um, but what I think is that at the same time as all this was going on, you do have various um, ideological movements. Um, the most obvious one was, of, was of course, communism. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, but that was that. If we, but if we get to, um, and, and, and indeed, you know, if you look at the things that Lenin said, if you look at early, you, you know, this was very much taken up by the feminists. Um, but... What I'd like to look at, I mean, may, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I, I think that I'll, I'll take this from a different angle. Um, it's, it's tricky because I know what, if you, okay, well, there's also, I'm going to be jumping the gun and going ahead to Go other questions, if that's okay. Um, the, way, the way that I started thinking about it or thought about it is if you look at society today, I actually see what is an incredibly patriarchal society. Um, it's interesting because um, I've, I've always fought against feminism and uh, the feminists have always said we exist in a, in a patriarchy and, um, and you know, as, as someone who fights feminism, I should disagree with that, but I don't. I think that society is patriarchal, but I actually see patriarchy in a very different way. I'm a social anthropologist and as a social anthropologist, patriarchy is simply a system of organisation. It's a hierarchical system of organisation where actually the person at the top of the hierarchy can often be controlled by the person at the bottom of the hierarchy. Patriarchy isn't in itself something negative. It's, it's, it, it can be used for bad and it can be used for good. It's simply a form of social organisation. Now, I think we actually um, live in a society which is very um, negatively patriarchal. And this is, you know, we have, if you, I mean, COVID has really taught me this, and I, and I don't want to go too much into that whole subject, but what I've become aware of through what's been happening is that we live in an enormously top-down controlled society where, you know, you've got sort of four men controlling a huge, enormous amount of wealth where you know every aspect of our lives is monitored and it's going more and more and more in that direction a very controlled society and um and it's incredible that this has actually come to be um after 70 years of um a movement which is ostensibly fighting patriarchy and the thing is when i actually look at it um what I see is a movement which has inadvertently been promoting patriarchy. And I'll explain, I'll explain how I think this has happened. You see, I, the way I see it, you've got your sort of patriarchy as a form of social organisation. And you've got patriarchy in the family. And, um, and the, the lower level patriarchy acts as a counter and a balance on this higher level patriarchy. But what we've seen over the past 70 years, past three generations, is a, is a complete sort of destruction of this lower level patriarchy, a destruction of the family. 
And this, I would argue, had the capacity of our, you know, acting as a counterweight to that higher-level patriarchy. But we've had this, this really ongoing destruction of the family happening at many different levels. And this was brought about by the feminists. And this is where I'm getting back to the question you asked me, who's, who's behind this? Um, now, this was brought about by the feminists, and, and, but when you look at the early feminists and what they were talking about, you start to see that what they were saying had actually come out of earlier and other ideological movements happening at the same time. And when you look at it, it's, it's really quite striking. You know, the feminists were there saying, we're going to destroy the patriarchy. But when you look at everything that they were preaching, the roots of this lay in ideologies which were um, spouted or whatever by by white, um, you know, sort of white, well-off, uh, you know, males. You know, you know, you could say they were the patriarchy themselves, and you can see this. I mean, the most <clears throat> the most obvious one, which I think a lot of people know about, is is the Frankfurt School. But it, it's really when you start looking at it. It's really striking the way in which um, the feminists actually took up the things which they were arguing against. And the Frankfurt School did, these people did actually want to destroy society as it actually was at the time. Um, it was um, a, a close offshoot of the whole communist movement. I think it actually did start. You could say the roots of the Frankfurt School were in Moscow. It then went to Frankfurt and it then moved, I think it was to New York, but it moved to the US. And if you look at the things that they were saying um, from, you know, first of all, they, they, they avoided calling it communism. They called, they called it dialectical materialism, but it, it was, you know, fairly communist, but the sorts of things, they, they were absolutely clear amongst themselves that they wanted to destroy the family. Um, if you look at um, Frome and Marcuse, Horkheimer, you know, if you look at, th this, is, this is something that they wanted to do. But they called it patriarchy because nobody would go along with destroying um, the family. So they called that patriarchy. The other thing which they did, and, and, and they had tools at their disposal, so there was this whole theory, um, Adorno, um, he created this idea of the authoritarian personality to to explain Nazism. And this was very useful because, you know, anybody who believed in tradition or believed in family, they could just say that they were authoritarian. And that was another way in which they could destroy the family. Um, and then they talked about sexual repression. Um, actually, if you look at the um, early women's movement, which I would be very supportive of, this was about um, sexual integrity. You know, the, the women of the early, early women's movement were in favour of men practising chastity so that they wouldn't get pregnant all the time. You know, they actually exercised quite a lot of control over their menfolk. It wasn't, it wasn't about repression. It was seen as something positive, practising a positive virtue in order to develop self-mastery, for example. But this was all portrayed as sexual repression and the answer to sexual um, repression was promiscuity and you can look you can look at for example the words of Marcuse and what he said about you know promiscuity and you you can look at the words of Kate Miller you know 10-15 years later and they match up almost exactly um, and there, there are many other ways you can just trace the feminists back to this um, Frankfurt school um, 
I mean, there, there are many ways, but one, one, of the, the mo- one of the strongest, actually, I suppose this isn't um, exactly the Frankfurt School, but the whole abortion um, issue. So, you know, this is portrayed, it's, it's quite clever because it's portrayed as if uh, this is what women want and the men are against it. The truth about abortion was completely different. So, um, for example, Margaret Sanger had actually been really strongly against abortion. And it wasn't until she died and a man, I can't remember his name, took over Planned Parenthood that they brought in abortion. Um, But the people who brought in abortion were actually, um, it was someone called Larry Lader and uh, Nathanson. And we know this story because Nathanson... Um, at some point saw an embryo, you know, he, he saw um, an image of an embryo and he suddenly converted, you know, I don't know how many abortions they'd been responsible for, but suddenly he became anti-abortion. And then he told the story of what happened. And, um, and, and the story actually was that Larry Lader um, was deter- he, he was very much in favour of abortion. Now, you might ask, you know, why was he in favour of abortion? Now, you have to remember that what the early women's movement wanted to do, it wanted to be able to combine women's home domestic role with some participation in the workplace, you know, which would mean some kind of maternity, perhaps maternity pay, perhaps a bit of childcare. It was, it was quite gentle. It wasn't, you know, this farming children off. And this would put big financial demands, I think, on on the market system. And I think this was part of the push. I mean, this is more hypothetical, but I think this was part of the push for abortion because they had this whole new wonderful labour force of women pouring into the market and they didn't want them going out of the labour force because they were all having babies. And abortion acted as a stop on that. And, uh, I mean, it's quite interesting when this latest, you know, when when Roe Roe v Wade fell recently... The organisations which were all coming out and saying, we'll pay for your abortions, we'll pay for your abortions. It's all these big, the big companies, you know, Amazon and so forth. Um, I've got a whole list of them who are out there offering to pay for women's abortions. So you have to understand abortion was necessary for men and for industry. And it was quite interesting because when Leda and Nathanson were discussing um, how to get this abortion through, Leda was saying, we've got to recruit Betty Friedan. You know, we need Betty Friedan. She's the one who can push it through. Betty Friedan, like Margaret Sanger had been, was absolutely against abortion. She was really against abortion. Nathanson, interestingly, was, um, wasn't so sure about this because the people in favour of abortion at that time tended to be men. They tended to be doctors and lawyers. And he was worried that if, a, you know, if all the sort of wacky feminists started being in favour of abortion, this would put the men off it. But, Na- but Leda said, no, this is the way to do it. And he was a clever strategist and he knew that you had to have an enemy in order to push something. And he decided that the enemy would be the Catholic Church. This was completely... Um, he that that he made that quite clear. You, um, this is and it's explained by Nathanson in in his accounts. Um, now, what happened then? He also wrote a book. I mean, he was he was a master of propaganda. He had a lot of his own money, and eventually, through actually some absolutely false statistics about the number of backstreet abortions, he managed to convince Frieden to push for a to push for abortion in the National Organization of Women and, 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 and abortion, abortion came to be. But it's quite interesting how, when you look at the sorts of things these feminists were saying, I was looking, for example, at Ty Grace Atkinson. She was a big feminist at the time. 
she was talking about the, the Catholic Church. This was the bastion of evil. But this, of course, came directly from people like Leda. And you can see in so many of these narratives that the feminists were pushing, they were pushing the blooming narrative of the, pa the patriarchy. The feminists were pushing the narrative of the patriarchy. And this is why when you look at society today, we've actually got a society where women, data shows women are the ones who have become unhappier, significantly unhappier, um, rather than men, although men it has had many negative effects in the, in the high suicide rates. You know, and when you look at, for example, um, the way we conduct sex lives, that must be like a men's dream. You know, it's like back then, at the early women's movement, women were pushing for what was called voluntary motherhood, which meant chastity until we decide we want to have a baby sort of thing. Um, you know, that was, that was the early women's movement, yet we've arrived at a place where what's cool is hookup culture and you have magazines, Louise Perry wrote about this really eloquently, you know, magazines which are, are, are explaining to women how not to get emotionally involved when you have sex, you know, and <clears throat> so this is, the, this is, I mean, this is what I, I think has actually happened in, is that, <clears throat> It's feminists who, instead of promoting the interests of women, have actually been promoting... They haven't really been promoting the interests of men. Absolutely not. It's definitely not been in the interests of men, but it's been in the interests of this top, elite, most wealthy, most powerful men, the interests of the, the sort of tip of the patriarchy. So is the, the tip of the patriarchy... It doesn't matter whether they're men or women so much. They're just extremely powerful, wealthy, small amount of people. Do you know, it, it's interesting because, of course, you know, there are the odd... There is the odd woman, you know, in this group. And, indeed, it is more about structure than sex. But I do believe that social structure does, in some way, reflect the sex of the person. And I do believe it's more of a masculine male, you know, I believe in sex difference. And I'm not sure that women would have come out with this whole construction of how society ought to be organised. I think that was a male patriarchal thing. This is, and it still exists, you know, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, all that stuff. You know, sure, there are women in there, but it takes men, and men isolated from women, men off able to go onto their own, you know, world, to create this whole idea about how they want society to look. So um, I wouldn't. I would say that it is a more, a more male thing. Which you know, I'm not. I'm not blaming men, and I'm not blaming women. We. I'm done with all of that. I'm done with all of that. You know, and I. And I think that you know, if if we want to start playing the blame game, you know, it did require feminists to fall for all of this for it to happen. We're all equally responsible. We're all equally culpable. Um, but I, I. I would say that although. I see patriarchy as a kind of social structure. It is bound in with um, masculinity. And I think that, um, well, I've been thinking about this, and I'll try out this idea because it's just an idea I had, and I, I, I'm not sure about it. But when I look around me, and this particularly, again, it's happened with COVID, so I'm a researcher, and right from the beginning of the COVID thing, I was following the data, you know, 
And I could see that the stories coming out in the news didn't tally with the data. You know, um, I, I don't, it's not really a topic I want to go into, but as a researcher, I could see at so many levels, this is the data, this is the story that they're pushing. And, but I noticed that, you know, I, I wrote articles, um, but I also spoke to friends, you know, friends who've got respect for me, friends who, who know that I'm a fairly sensible person. Um, I, I spoke to people and I found that it doesn't matter. You can give people all the data, you can tell them all the facts, but if someone who they perceive as powerful and in authority is saying something, they can't help but believe it. And what I've come to believe is that as human beings, we have a kind of patriarchal tendency. People will believe those in power who are telling them certain things, unless someone comes along and really, really proves to them that those in power are false. And, and I was thinking about it. It reminded me back of when I was at university. You know, I was at a very left-wing place. I was at the London School of Economics. And, and my father would say to me, you know, that these were left-wing arguments. And I'd get really upset. This is what I was being taught at university, and therefore it was true. If you tell a child that their teacher isn't saying the truth, they get really upset. And this, I believe, is, is that we, we do have a tendency towards kind of attaching too much importance to the person at the top than we should. And that's why, you know, we do actually need those people at the top to go through rigorous kind of competence and truth tests in order to be there because we're going to believe them and this is not what we have we've we've utterly destroyed the mechanisms you know if you look back at our tribal society the people who are at the top of this hierarchy would have they would have won many contests they would have proved their worth they wouldn't have got there without that but we've been destroying patriarchy in some sense and so the people at the top are just they are not they are absolutely not people that we can trust. They're people that we, we know we can't trust. We know they are unscrupulous, often extremely dishonest, out you know, with their own self-interest, but, but human nature is to trust them. And so this is why it's so important that actually we need sound people to be at the top. But so, I can't... So <laughs> you're saying that it's human nature that we, we need these figures at the yeah. top and what we need to focus on is getting good figures yeah, at the top who I, can be trusted. That's right. But also we we need to have the... I think that the family patriarchy provides strength at the bottom. It provides a counterweight. Patriarchy should always be steered and driven and directed by the people at the bottom. That's what, even when I, this I realised when I looked at anthropological societies, the king was the subject of the people. And this is, this, is the org, this is the structure of patriarchy. And yet what we've been doing is thoroughly eroding that whole counterweight, which is the family at the bottom. And, and that's, that's what we need to be rebuilding. That's what I'm really concerned about, is what's happened to that family. You um, called marriage the uh, bedrock of society. Could you talk to us a bit about the importance of marriage and, and kind of where it is in, in today's society, really? Yeah, I really do think marriage is the bedrock of society. And this is because I believe that we need to rebuild the family. And without marriage, the, 
the family is in a sense reduced to the mother and child unit. I, w I want to make it clear, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm a single parent myself, okay? I've got quite a complicated family background. So, you know, I'm not knocking anything, but I believe that family is a mother and father and children. And I believe that um, in order for um, the, fa the father to be an integral part of the family, there needs to be marriage, and that without marriage, the father's position in the family is very vulnerable, which is what we've seen. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, because if, if you look at, you know, I've been talking about these Frankfurt School people, I've been talking about the feminists, and one of the things they really wanted to destroy and, and have, have destroyed in all sorts of ways was marriage, and I think that indicates its power. Why would they want to destroy it so much if it wasn't powerful? And the reason it's powerful is because it brings the man as a central pillar of the family, which um, you know, which is which is very important because you know the mother you know, through nature the the mother and child bond is absolutely clear to everybody you know child is born we know who the mother is but the father's role with the child is always mediated by the mother and uh, i think was it townsend or stephen knox there's been various lots of research into the family in the days when perhaps it was more slightly more familyistic than it is now but what they showed was that the father's role is very much mediated by the mother it's the mother who decides whether the father is going to be the disciplinarian or the fun person for when the children get home. It's the mother who knows what the children are doing at all times. It's the mother who who sort of sets the tone for the family. And and if and if the and if, and, and if there is divorce, it, it it tends to be the father who um, sees significantly significantly less of the child. And even there's a research called Andrea Doucette, and she did a lot of research into full-time fathers, you know, fathers who look after the children from the earliest ages. And even these fathers felt that there is a natural bond between the mother and the baby, which, um, which sort of the, the father didn't have in the same way. None of which is to say that, the, can I make clear, I believe the father is absolutely just as important as the mother and that's why marriage is so important because marriage brings the father into the family but but there are there are many many other sort of really ma marriage has a re it has very practical effects um in in all sorts of ways i mean <clears throat> one one of the things is that um when you get married, you are showing someone else this very high degree of trust. And there's research to say that when you show someone trust, it actually has a positive effect on their behaviour. So, you know, there is no greater sign of trust than saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm marrying you. So it does actually bring out a, a positive aspect of human nature. But the commitment which is also involved in marriage, and may I say that um, although our divorce laws have greatly weakened that commitment by weakening marriage, the public still recognises the importance of marriage. You know, marriage, if I should say, is predates the state it's before it's a natural institution you know it's we have a natural feeling for marriage and and um 
And, and this commitment is itself a very generative, uh, has a very generative function in all sorts of ways. Um, I mean, what you find is when people are married, and I, let's say if we compare marriage to cohabitation, people who are married are more prepared to take risks. The mother will be more prepared to spend time with her children because she feels safe. A cohabiting mother may be more keen to invest in, in her employment because she doesn't quite know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, the married father will invest in his family. He won't go out and buy the latest car because this is, you know, he believes this is an institution which will last. And it's also generative in the sense of, if you look at married men, all the data shows that married men earn more than unmarried men. Marriage actually provokes men into being more productive, working harder, and people start investing when they get married. Marriage is an enormously wealth-generating institution. And why I think marriage is so important now is that we have this really patriarchal society, and what we need to do is strengthen. We need to strengthen the grassroots, and the way to do this is through marriage. And the thing is, even if the state came out tomorrow and banned marriage, we human nature would recreate it. You know, marriage comes from us. Yes, the state can back it up, and the state used to support marriage because, um, I mean, it supported marriage because it saw marriage as the best institution for bringing up children, and this is what the data shows. Children who grow up with married parents, sort of, um, in the statistics, they come out a whole class higher. If you, if you look at the data on this, it really has an enormously beneficial um, effect. So marriage is great for children. So the state provided legal support to marriage. Um, and, it, and it backed up, in a sense, an institution that was already there. So at this time, when we're so threatened by this central authority that wants to control every aspect of our life, what we need to do is rebuild from the bottom up. And this needs to be built on marriage. And there is another aspect of marriage which I think is um, tremendously important, which is that we currently... As I was explaining, you know, the sort of homo laborans or whatever you want to call it, this sort of in, the individual, we, we've been encouraged to exist just as individuals, laws unto ourselves. But what happens in marriage is that suddenly your own um, good is achieved through the good of the other person, if you see what I mean. You want the best for the other person. What is best for the other person is the best for you. And in this, this is how community works. Community is about how your own well-being depends on the well-being of others. And this is why um, marriage, marriage is the first cell doing that, where your well-being depends on the well-being of your husband or your wife. So marriage is, is, is important in that sense. And, and there are many other ways. I think marriage is really important for the development of identity and and I think this is why, um, what's her name, Primal Scream Eberhardt, I can't remember the name. There's a, there's a really good book written about how the reason we're falling for all these kind of group identities, we're latching onto them like anything, is because that primary familial identity has been destroyed and it's, it's it, because the family has been destroyed. And I remember she cited research about children from, and I'm a child of divorce, you know, children from... Um, divorced parents, their identity is much weaker. It's sort of split between these two families. So there are so many ways in which marriage is really um, 
enormously important, and I could probably talk even more about it, but, but um, you know, and we've lost sight of this because it's, you know, it's like, what's the difference between marriage and cohabitation? Well, there, there is actually, there, there's, a, there's a lot of difference, and there, this is in the data. The statistical data shows really massive differences between marriage and cohabitation. And one thing I just want to point out is that this is now being lost by the data because what a lot of statistics will do is they will put cohabitation, marriage, all kinds of marriage, civil union, they'll put them all together in one basket. So the specific differences of, you know, man-woman marriage kind of disappear in, um, in this sort of statistical agglomeration of these other types of union. Um, so, you know, we need to be careful when we look at the data, but this is what the data shows, that marriage really is different from cohabitation and, 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 and other forms of social organisation. So You've talked quite a bit about family, and family's been under attack since Marx, really, yeah. um, right at the start. Yeah. And now it seems almost having a child is kind of looked upon as a sign of being oppressed. Um, yeah. We can see this in the reproduction rates, which are taking quite a hit in the West. Yeah. I mean, what can women do about this? Yes, it's... It's um, it's 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 a really it's a really tricky question. I mean, I feel that um, I feel that it's it, it's not so much that um, having a child, it's not so much that having a child is viewed negatively. It's that there is so much value attached to having a career and to establishing your identity outside the family and also that simply or if you look at the whole tax and benefits system this makes it really difficult to just um, look after your child so I think that there are all these social forces and if you look at the data if you if you if you look at the policy formation which i have looked at this is this is not a coincidence i mean there are documents you know written by patricia hewitt and others which were determined to you know get women out to work to um destroy marriage and and and, and so forth um and i think that what we need to do really is find ways of um, giving men and women the opportunity to be with their children. Um, I mean, there are practical, at the state level, the whole tax and benefit system needs to shift so that actually, because at the moment, um, married... It, um, at the moment, people with children are hugely penalised by the tax and benefit system. And the other group that's hugely penalised is if you live together and only one of you is earning. So single earners and people who have children are really, you look at the data, massively penalised. It's quite shocking. They pay thousands and thousands more in tax. Um, so we really need to change that so that people can look after their children. At the only at the moment, the only people who can look after the chil their children are the very wealthiest. Those the, you know, and I'm not saying I think both men and women. I think children are very important to both men and women. I'm not making. Um, I think men and women have very different roles in relation to children, but both have equally important roles. So we need to find ways 
that women can look after their children. And I think that we need also to... Do you know what? Women don't actually know. There's been this myth perpetrated that children benefit, or it does no harm to children, to be in childcare from the earliest ages. This is not true. It's not good for children. And there's increasing data coming out showing, I'm afraid, that it's not good for children to be in childcare. I, I put my own children in childcare, but if you look at the data, this is what it says. And I think we do need to raise a bit of awareness about this because at the moment, I remember thinking it would be good for my child to go to nursery when she was very young. I want to do this for her. That's not what the data is showing. It's not good for children in all sorts of ways. So we need to get that information out there about the impact of childcare. And I think that we need to give parents the opportunity through um, the tax and benefit system of looking after their children. Um, and, and, and then I think they will do so. I mean, at the moment, I think the government just recently came out with a new proposal. I might have this wrong, or was it a Labour proposal? I can't remember, but wrap around childcare from eight in the morning till six in the evening. I used to work in a breakfast club and the reason I stopped was because my daughter was so unhappy coming with me in the morning, getting up that early to go to breakfast club. But I can tell you that the children who were getting to that breakfast club first thing in the morning and then going to the after school club, they were miserable. You could spot them. You could spot them. Childminders can spot them. It's not, it's not good for children to spend ages in childcare. It's not good for children to be in childcare from when they're babies. And we need to, we need to talk about this. Um, so I think that will encourage women. I, women, mothers like spending time with their children, but I also think we need to talk about how important it is because the trouble is that we've attached so much importance to having a career that I think women start feeling that they don't have an identity if they don't go out to work, you know. And so, I, I mean, I had big age gaps between... Um, my two children and and I really saw a, a changing culture and you know with, with my older child who's just about 30 back then there were still you know women would get together when their children were very small and they'd get together and do play groups and this and that and there was actually a sort of culture around children but then when I had my second child 13 years later women were already going out to work and so the women who wanted to look after their children were much more isolated at home and they didn't have that workplace identity. I think as women, we need to rebel against this patriarchal culture that's been forcing us out into work, really. And we need to say, no, stop. We want to look after our children. We want to be at home, you know. And I can tell you that um, after you, your children have grown up, and it happens very quickly. I mean, in my case, I did have quite a long gap between my kids, so I've probably spent slightly longer at home than, than other people. But actually, you've got a whole life. If you have your children young, youngish, you've got a whole life ahead of you when they grow up and leave home. Actually, even when you have your, you know, I had my, children, my second child quite when I was re re getting on a bit, wee bit. And uh, I've still got a whole life ahead of me, you know. You, you, there's this feeling you've got to go out to work. That's, that's sort of culturally created. It's not a truth. <laughs> so. so I think to, to sum up what I think you're saying, um, feminists are saying that they need to kind of go out to work to kind of beat the patriarchy, whereas you're saying it's kind of actually the opposite, really. You could, the, the patriarchal system is, is putting them in that position. 
and they should be doing what they want to do, which can be staying at home and looking after their children. Yes, that that's absolutely what I say. So it's almost an anti-feminist feminist. <laughs> yes, you you could you could you could almost you could almost say that. And it, it's funny because if you look at the the, the feminist favourite word is choice, but actually, women don't have choice. They don't have the choice to stay at home at the moment, and that's the choice that we need to create. It's it's funny. This this word choice is. It's used very deceptively. It's tempting me to get onto the abortion topic, but but um, you know, actually, feminism has taken choice away, and 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 we need to we need to we need to sort of recreate it. Um, and uh, and I'm actually I'm, I'm very cautious. I actually don't subscribe to the word feminist because I think no feminism does have this certain set, set of meanings which I don't subscribe to. I, the early women's movement, you know, those early, not not the stuff, well, don't get me on this, but there are lots of things in the early women's movement which, yes, that I'm fine with. Um, but I'm, feminism, I think, has been corrupted by the whole Frankfurt School-created sexual revolution, which was a sort of patriarchal ideology as far as I'm concerned. Well, going into that, it was not that long ago, say when I was a, a teenager, um, girls would guard their virtue, if you like, and the guys were trying to persuade them otherwise, often unsuccessfully. Uh, whereas nowadays, it seems you've almost gone to the opposite extreme. A lot of uh, females are more promiscuous than the males. Yeah. What kind of damage do you feel this has done to our society? Well, um, actually, I, it's, it's done damage in all sorts of ways. I mean... You ask about, I mean, it has done enormous damage to women, but you're asking about the damage to society, which is a, it's a very important question and not really a, a well-addressed question. Um, and um, I think that actually this, if, if, you, I could, if, if you look at this sort of culture of promiscuity, um, this actually lies at the root of the of the breakdown of marriage and the family. I mean, I you know, I, it's probably a topic more for a, a lecture because it's quite detailed. But um, the, the, it started. Yes, there's the Frankfurt School, but contraception and abortion um, tore apart the um, links between um, se sex and marriage. And um, it, it was at this point. Um, that we started to see this uh, very encouraged by the ideology, this sort of promiscuous culture emerge, which has, which has ended up with a hookup culture. And um, I think that for I think there are many negative effects. I think for as long as sex is freely available outside marriage, that is going to um, act as a drag on marriage. That's going to discourage marriage. Um, if men can get sex outside of marriage, there is there is less. I think that yeah, they, that will discourage marriage. And I think also if if people can easily get sex outside of marriage, that weakens marriage once you're in it. Um, so I think that the culture of promiscuity is linked. Um, to the breakdown of the family, um, very much so, um, and I. But I think that um, I think that it's also been really negative for men because, um, 
One of the arguments that, that my husband, Jeff, Jeff Dench, um, used to make, he, he wrote a, a lot about men, um, sadly he passed away some years ago, but he used to say that, you know, the reason that men do so many amazing things, you know, the, 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 their drive to, you know, get great jobs, to produce art, to uh, make money, to build houses is because they want to, um, it, it, it's, it's their, their drive to reproduce. It's the male um, libido. The male libido is a, it's a tremendous source of energy which can either be channeled into sexual promiscuity or it, it can, you know, in old-fashioned days, that, that male libido, which is a tremendously creative force, could be channeled into creativity. And that's what young Young men used to be taught to channel their libido into, you know, do well at school, build things, do things. You know, it can either go in in that way, which now, you know, maybe pornography has taken over a lot of the, the negative, you know, channeled libido in a very, very negative way. Or it can be channeled in, in a very positive, non, sort of non-sexual way into create creativity, which actually is... It's the male peacock, you know. The men create things in order to attract the female, and so the libido would channel them into creating all sorts of wonderful things to attract the female. But once the females are just available, once sex is just available, once pornography is just available, then, you know, that libido ceases to be channeled into something that's creative and productive, and I think you start to have a decline of society. And <clears throat> actually, this has been documented by... Um, the 1930s anthropologist um, called Unwin. He wrote a book on sex and culture. And he actually provided fantastic evidence to totally back this up. You know, he showed that societies where, which practised um, monogamy and prenuptial chastity reached the sort of peak of, um, you know, cultural well-being. And societies which gave up on this just declined. So I think that this whole promiscuity thing actually has far great, has, has even greater negative consequences than the mental health implications for, for women, which it does have. It ha I think it has big social implications, both through its impact on the family and the destruction of the family and its impact on, on, on men. So, um, yeah. You're currently working on research into fatherhood. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the role of fatherhood in contemporary Britain? Yes, I, I think it's, um, I think as a, as a, as a, you know, the, the, the feminists in the 1980s, Hewitts and Harmons and this and that, you know, their various feminists were very determined. I've got articles by Polly Toynbee, you know, they were determined to see the father as an optional extra to the family. Actually, no, I would say that the father is the central spine to the family. You know, families really absolutely need fathers. Um, but I think, you know, and this is, you know, and, and there is so much data in all sorts of ways to show the importance of fathers to children at all sorts of levels. You know, if you look at Pre-industrial societies, you know, childhood mortality was so strongly linked to the presence or absence of a father. A child's outcome all through their life is linked to the presence or absence of a father. Every single negative variable, you know, crime, health, education, employment, everything 
is linked to the presence or absence of a father. So, you know, I think we need to realise how important fathers are to families. But one of the things which also does trouble me is that there's been a bit of a tendency to assume that the father is just another childminder like the mother. You know, in anthropology, we call it the allo parent. Um, and what I'd like to emphasise is that fathers actually have a really distinctive role. Mothers and fathers have very distinctive roles in relation to the child. And the way I see it is that the, the mother provides, the, in a sense, the embrace, the direct caring and protection of the child. Um, and the father provides the bridge for that child to go out into wider society. And if you look at, you know, psychologists have looked in depth at the different ways in which mothers and fathers interact with their children from, the, from when they're born. There are differences. And it, it's interesting. It actually turns out children, babies prefer playing with their daddies. Their daddies play in more exciting ways and children get more fun with playing with their dads. But this goes, you can look at it in many different ways. What fathers do is... They, let, let, they help the child develop independence. They prepare the child for functioning in wider society. One thing, if you look, an example of this, if you look at how the mother and father approach to problem solving, let's say a child's, something's happened that's made the child deeply unhappy. The mother's um, desire, which is both equally valuable, is to, to comfort the child, comfort and console the child. The father's approach is to try to solve the problem. And in a sense, this takes the child out of themselves to think more about the wider world. And there is actually research which shows that children with fathers who've grown up with active fathers actually have more empathy than children who don't have fathers. I've read that somewhere. I can't remember the citation, but I have read that children who have actively involved fathers are more empathic. And I think that father, the father's role is to help the child move out into wider society. And I think we need to recognise that mothers and fathers do have different roles, equally important for the child and different. Um, so I think that we, you know, we, we just, we need to bring the father back into the family and realise his central importance. Um, but at the same time, I think it, it, this is really important for, um, for boys growing up. Um, my, my husband and I, we, we did some research. We were, his, his hypothesis was that um, boys who had some awareness, who, who, who were more traditional in their thinking, would be more motivated in school. What I mean by this is that boys who grew up thinking that they will have a family and that they will have a role supporting that family will be more motivated in education. And it was only a small study. It's very, very difficult to get funding for that sort of thing um, because, you know, <laughs> they like to say that families can survive without fathers. You'll find this written in all sorts. So it's difficult to get funding, but we did manage to get about three, a case sample of 300. And we did find the beginnings of evidence. I think we found that boys who thought that they would have um, a certain number of children were much more interested in their schoolwork. The boys who said, who said, no, they wouldn't have any children, and the boys who said, yeah, I'm going to have 20 children, they weren't so interested in the schoolwork. And there was this link between foreseeing a family role and being interested in schoolwork. And I think this could be the missing link of why boys without fathers do worse at school, because 
they're not quite sure what their role is. I think what you have to remember is that for the child, the small child, their universe is their family. Their universe isn't out there yet. The small child, the universe is their family. And the mother has an obvious central importance in that universe. And you need to have the father there for the little boys so that they too see that they have a central importance. Even if that father is out at work, as long as that work is recognised as a central contribution to the family, the boy can see that he has a role for himself. The boy without the father isn't quite sure what his role is going to be. So he isn't quite sure what all this work at school is for. So I think that this is actually fatherhood is tremendously important in providing um, a kind of, you know, steering light for boys. And, you know, at the end of the day, for, for both boys and girls, family is really important. You know, the idea that we will have families. And I often think this is why girls don't need so much motivation because we know we can get pregnant we know we can have a baby at any time and we know if we've got that baby we're going to need to look after it so we've kind of got this natural internal motivation whereas the boy's role is a bit more outside of that and so he needs to be it needs to be culturally constructed that he has a key and central role in the family and this is what you'll find in pre-tribal societies You'll find that, you know, during the teenage years, boys are taught skills like hunting and house building and they go through initiation ceremonies. And when they've they've achieved all these skills and they're seen as ready for marriage, it gives a structure to their to their lives. Whereas we live in a culture which has been determined to say we don't need you. You know, and so boys, you know, then you, you, you get all the delinquency and, you know, then you then you get the the toxic masculinity, a hugely overlooked term, but if you say to boys you're no use and you're toxic, well, self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so I'm sure I could say more. I think, yeah, so yeah, I think fatherhood is, is really important and I think we need to draw attention to it. So that's why um, I've become really interested in it. We've, talk, we've uh, touched on a lot of different issues today um, what, um, in a kind of nutshell, can be done to bring hope for the future? What, what measures do you feel? We need to rebuild the family, you know. We need a rebirth of the family. We need to, you know, the most rebellious action you can do these days, and I should say it's not an easy thing to do because I'm afraid, because of feminists, they've created such a hostility, it's tragic, between young men and women, you know, they've done so much to disrupt the relay in so many ways not just feminists please let me not just blame them lots of, you know I don't want to just blame feminists they're all sorts of forces which have done so much to disrupt the relation between men and women and especially young men and women but I think the most sort of rebellious and yet most constructive thing that we can do is is, is rebuild the family get married have children Educate those children. I think there's space for home education. What's happening in schools at the moment is terribly worrying with the um, whole sex education and trans thing. Um, you know, get married, have children. It, it's funny because the whole thing that we've been taught to rebel against, I actually think is the most um, transformative um, action that we can take to, to challenge what I see as... We, we've got a really serious authoritarian top-down society is coming upon us. Uh, you know, for those 
with their eyes open, we can see this happening in all, all sorts of ways. And we've got to um, create this strong private realm, you know, and not just family, also our friendship networks. We've got to build strong networks at this private level and so that we can make demands on the powers that be, so that we can be the ones telling them what to do. Because at the moment, they are the ones steering and directing us. No, we've got to reverse that relationship. We've got to be making them serve our needs because after all it's us people us families our mothers fathers children it's, it's us people who are this is what society is all about and this is the government should be there to serve our interests at the moment we tend to be you know working in the interests of some great big global organizations up there so yes that's what i think we should be doing Linda Brown, thank you for joining us on Precious Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for taking an interest in what I have to say. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lee.